The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill Read by Adrian Pretzelis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill Chapter 4 But Sandy Sanderson's burning solicitude to fix the crime flickered out in the face of opposition, and in the end he bowed his head to the inevitable open verdict. Then the floodgates of Inkland were opened, and the deluge pattered for nine days on the deaf coffin where the poor idealist moulded. The tongues of the press were loosened, and the leader-writers revelled in recapitulating the circumstances of the Big Bow Mystery though they could contribute nothing but adjectives to the solution. The papers teemed with letters. It was a kind of Indian summer of the silly season, but the editors could not keep them out, nor cared to. The mystery was the one topic of conversation everywhere. It was on the carpet, and the bare boards alike, in the kitchen and the drawing-room. It was discussed with science or stupidity, with aspirates or without. It came up for breakfast with the rolls, and was swept off the supper-table with the last crumbs. Number 11 Glover Street Bow remained for days a shrine of pilgrimage. The once sleepy little street buzzed from morning till night. From all parts of the town people came to stare up at the bedroom window, and wonder with a foolish face of horror. The pavement was often blocked for hours altogether, and itinerant vendors of refreshment made it a new market-centre, while vocalists hastened thither to sing the delectable ditty of the deed, without having any voice in the matter. It was a pity the government did not elect a toll-gate at either end of the street, but chancellors of the exchequer rarely availed themselves of the more obvious expedients for paying the national debt. Finally, familiarity bred contempt, and the wits grew facetious at the expense of the mystery. Jokes on the subjects appeared even in the comic papers. To the proverb, you must not say boo to a goose, one added, or else she will explain you the mystery. The name of the gentleman who asked whether the bow mystery was not— The name of the gentleman who asked whether the bow mystery was not arrowing should not be divulged. There was one more point in Dragonet's remark, that, if he had been one of the unhappy jurymen, he should have been driven to suicide. A professional paradox-monger pointed triumphantly to the somewhat similar situation in the Murder in the Rue Morgue, and said that nature had been plagiarising again, like the monkey she was, and he recommended Poe's publishers to apply for an injunction. More seriously, Poe's solution was suggested by Constant Reader as an original idea. He thought that a small organ-grinder's monkey might have got down the chimney with its master's razor, and, after attempting to shave the occupant of the bed, have returned the way it came. This idea created considerable sensation, but a correspondent, with a long train of letters draggling after his name, pointed out that a monkey small enough to get down so narrow a flue would not be strong enough to inflict so deep a wound. 
This was disputed by a third writer, and the contest raged so keenly about the power of a monkey's muscles that it was almost taken for granted that a monkey was the guilty party. The bubble was pricked by the pen of common sense, who laconically remarked that no traces of soot or blood had been discovered on the floor, or on the nightshirt, or on the counterpane. The Lancet's leader on the mystery was awaited with interest. It said, We cannot join in the praises that have been showered upon the coroner's summing up. It shows again the evils resulting from having coroners who are not medical men. He seems to have appreciated but inadequately the significance of the medical evidence. He should certainly have directed the jury to return a verdict of murder on that. What was it to do with him that he could see no way by which the wound could have been inflicted by an outside agency? It was for the police to find out how that was done. Enough that it was impossible for the young man to have inflicted such a wound, and then have the strength and will-power enough to hide the instrument, and to remove perfectly every trace of his having left the bed for the purpose. It is impossible to enumerate all the theories propounded by the amateur detectives, while Scotland Yard religiously held its tongue. Ultimately, the interest in the subject became confined to a few papers which had received the best letters. Those papers that couldn't get interesting letters stopped the correspondence and sneered at the sensationalism of those that could. Among the mass of fantasy there were not a few notable solutions which failed brilliantly, like rockets posing as fixed stars. One was that in the obscurity of the fog the murderer had ascended the window of the bedroom by means of a ladder from the pavement. He had then, with a diamond, cut one of the panes away, and effected an entry through the aperture. On leaving, he fixed in the pane of the glass again, or another which he had brought with him, and thus the room remained with its bolts and locks untouched. On its being pointed out that the panes were too small, a third correspondence showed that that didn't matter, as it was only necessary to insert a hand and undo the fastening, when the entire window could be opened the process being reversed by the murderer on leaving. This pretty edifice of glass was smashed by a glazier, who wrote to say that a pane could hardly be fixed in from only one side of a window-frame, that it would fall out when touched, and that in any case the wet putty would not have escaped detection. A door-panel sliced out and replaced was also put forward and as many trap-doors and secret passages were ascribed to number 11 Glover Street as if it were a medieval castle. Another of these clever theories was that the murderer was in the room the whole time the police were there, hidden in the wardrobe, or that he had got behind the door when Grodman broke it open, so that he was not noticed in the excitement of discovery, and escaped with his weapon at the moment when Grodman and Mrs. Drabdump were examining the window fastenings. Scientific explanations were to hand to explain how the assassin locked and bolted the door behind him. Powerful magnets outside the door had been used to turn the key and push the bolt within. Murderers armed with magnets loomed on the popular imagination like a new microbe. There was only one defect in this ingenious theory. The thing could not be done. 
A physiologist recalled the conjurers who swallow swords by an anatomical peculiarity of the throat, and said that the deceased might have swallowed the weapon after cutting his own throat. This was too much for the police to swallow. As for the idea that the suicide had been effected with a penknife or its blade or a bit of steel, which had then got buried in the wound, not even the quotation of Shelley's line, "'Make such a wound, the knife is lost in it,' could secure it a moment's acceptance. The same reception was accorded to the idea that the cut had been made with a candlestick or other harmless necessary bedroom article, constructed like a sword-stick. Theories of this sort caused a humorist to explain that the deceased had hidden the razor in his hollow tooth. Some kind friends of Messrs. Maskelyne and Cook suggested that they were the only persons who could have done the deed, as no one else could have got out of a locked cabinet. But perhaps the most brilliant of these flashes of false fire was the facetious, yet probably half-seriously meant letter, that appeared in the pell-mell press under the heading of THE BIG BOW MYSTERY SOLVED. "'Sir, you will remember that when the Whitechapel murders were agitating the universe, I suggested that the district coroner was the assassin. My suggestion has been disregarded. The coroner is still at large. So is the Whitechapel murderer. Perhaps this suggestive coincidence will incline the authorities to pay more attention to me this time. The problem seems to be this. The deceased could not have cut his own throat. The deceased could not have had his throat cut for him. As one of the two must have happened, this is obvious nonsense. As this is obvious nonsense, I am justified in disbelieving it. As this obvious nonsense was primarily put into circulation by Mrs. Drabdump and Mr. Grodman, I am justified in disbelieving them. In short, sir, what guarantee have we that the whole tale is not a cock-and-bull story, invented by the two persons who first found the body? What proof is there that the deed was not done by these persons themselves, who then went to work to smash the door, and break the locks and the bolts, and fasten up the windows before they called the police in. I enclose my card, and am, sir, yours truly, one who looks through his own spectacles. Note. Our correspondent's theory is not so audaciously original as he seems to imagine. Has he not looked through the spectacles of the people who had persistently suggested that the Whitechapel murder was invariably the policeman who found the body? Somebody must find the body, if it is to be found at all. Ed. P.M.P. The editor had reason to be pleased that he had inserted this letter, for it drew the following interesting communication from the great detective himself. THE BIG BOW MYSTERY SOLVED Sir, I do not agree with you that your correspondence theory lacks originality. On the contrary, I think it is a delightful original. In fact, it has given me an idea. What the idea is, I do not yet propose to say, 
but if one who looks through his own spectacles would favour me with his name and address, I shall be happy to inform him a little before the rest of the world whether his germ has borne any fruit. I feel he is a kindred spirit, and take this opportunity of saying publicly that I was extremely disappointed at the unsatisfactory verdict. The thing was a palpable assassination. An open verdict has a tendency to relax the exertions of Scotland Yard. I hope I shall not be accused of immodesty, or of making personal reflections, when I say that the department has had several notorious failures of late. It is not what it used to be. Crime is becoming impertinent. It no longer knows its place, so to speak. It throws down the gauntlet where once it used to cower in its fastnesses. I repeat, I make these remarks solely in the interests of law and order. I do not for one moment believe that Arthur Constant killed himself, and if Scotland Yard satisfies itself with that explanation, and turns on its other side and goes to sleep again, then, sir, one of the foulest and most horrible crimes of the century will forever go unpunished. My acquaintance with the unhappy victim was but recent. Still, I saw and knew enough of the man to be certain, and I hope I have seen and known enough of other men to judge, that he was a man constitutionally incapable of committing an act of violence, whether against himself or anybody else. He would not hurt a fly, as the saying goes, and a man of that gentle stamp always lacks the active energy to lay hands on himself. He was a man to be esteemed in no common degree, and I feel proud to be able to say that he considered me a friend. I am hardly at the time of life at which a man cares to put on his harness again, but, sir, it is impossible that I should ever know a day's rest till the perpetrator of this foul deed is discovered. I have already put myself in communication with the family of the victim, who, I am pleased to say, have every confidence in me, and look to me to clear the name of their unhappy relative from the semi-imputation of suicide. I shall be pleased if anyone who shares my distrust of the authorities, and who has any clue whatever to this terrible mystery, or any plausible suggestion to offer, if, in brief, any one who looks through his own spectacles will communicate with me. If I were asked to indicate the direction in which new clues might be most usefully sought, I should say, in the first instance, anything is valuable that helps us piece together a complete picture of the manifold activities of the man in the East End. He entered one way or another into the lives of a good many people. Is it true that he nowhere made enemies? With the best intentions a man may wound or offend. His interference may be resented. He may even excite jealousy. A young man like the late Mr. Constant could not have had as much practical sagacity as he had goodness. Whose corns did he tread on? The more we know of the last months of his life, the more we shall know of the manner of his death.
thanking you by anticipation for the insertion of this letter in your valuable columns. I am, sir, yours truly, George Grodman, 46 Glover Street, Bow. P.S. Since writing the above lines, I have, by the kindness of Miss Brent, been placed in possession of a most valuable letter, probably the last letter written by the unhappy gentleman. It is dated Monday, 3 December, on the very eve of the murder, and was addressed to her at Florence, and has now, after some delay, followed her back to London, where the sad news unexpectedly brought her. It is a letter couched on the whole in the most hopeful spirit, and speaks in details of his schemes. Of course, there are things in it not meant for the ears of the public, but there can be no harm in transcribing an important passage. You seem to have imbibed the idea that the East End is a kind of Golgotha, and this despite that the books out of which you probably got it are carefully labelled fiction. Lamb says somewhere that we think of the Dark Ages of literally without sunlight, and so I fancy, like you, dear, think of the East End as a mixture of mire, misery, and murder. How's that for alliteration? Why, within five minutes' walk of me there are the loveliest houses, with gardens back and front, inhabited by very fine people and furniture. Many of my university friends' mouths would water if they knew the income of some of these shopkeepers in the high road. The rich people about here may not be so fashionable as those in Kensington and Bayswater, but they are every bit as stupid and materialistic. I don't deny, Lucy, I do have my black moments, and I do sometimes pine to get away from all this to the lands of sun and lotus-eating, but on the whole I am too busy even to dream of dreaming. My real black moments are when I doubt that I am really doing any good. But yet, on the whole, my conscience, or my self-conceit, tells me that I am. If one cannot do much with the mass, there is at least the consolation of doing good to the individual. And after all, is it not enough to have been an influence for good over one or two human souls? There are quite fine characters hereabout, especially in the women natures capable not only of self-sacrifice, but of delicacy of sentiment. To have learned to know of such, to have been of service to one or two of such, is not that ample return? I could not get to St. James's Hall to hear your friend's symphony at the Henschel concert. I have been reading Madame Bavlatsky's latest book, and am getting quite interested in occult philosophy. Unfortunately, I have to do all my reading in bed, and I don't find the book as soothing a, a soporific as most new books. For keeping one awake, I find theosophy as bad as toothache. Next, a subsequent letter to the Pell-Mell Press, titled, The Big Bow Mystery Solved. Sir, I wonder if anyone besides myself has been struck by the incredible bad taste of Mr. Grodman's letter in your last issue that he, a former servant of the department, should publicly insult and run it down, can only be charitably explained by the supposition that his judgment is failing him in his old age. 
in view of this letter are the relatives of the deceased justified in entrusting him with any private documents it is no doubt very good of him to avenge one whom he sees snobbishly anxious to claim as a friend but all things considered should not this letter have been headed the big bow mystery shelved i enclose my card and am sir your obedient servant scotland yard george grodman read this letter with annoyance and crumpling up the paper murmured scornfully edward wimp End of chapter four